Love Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be chatting with Kathy Martin about getting back to work and school after brain injury. This episode is brought to you by Midwest Functional Neurology, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion syndrome, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They have greatly helped me and many others find them online at MN functionalneurology.com. Hello, everyone. I am Amy Zellmer, and you are listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. For those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Advisory Council, and I recently released my second book, Embracing the Journey, Moving Forward After Brain Injury, which you can find on Amazon. And you can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com. Today, my guest is Kathy Martin, and Kathy is an occupational therapist and certified as an employment training specialist. She graduated from Eastern Michigan University and has been practicing in the Lansing area for over 20 years with experience working in acute care, inpatient rehabilitation, outpatient services, and industrial rehabilitation. She has lectured on accommodations and productivity after brain injury and published work on adolescents with TBI, transitioning back to school. She is a proctor for certified brain injury specialist exams and enjoys assisting coworkers prepare for the certification. She's honored to be part of a company that focuses on staying educated on the most up-to-date information, educating the community, and providing quality care to those they serve. Working in such a natural environment alongside so many individuals who truly have the best interests of their client and family members at heart is very rewarding to her. Origami Brain Injury Rehabilitation Center is a nonprofit organization located in Lansing, Michigan. Origami provides comprehensive rehabilitation care for survivors of brain injuries and their families. Through their compassionate and innovative service, Origami creates opportunities and transforms lives. So welcome to the podcast, Kathy. I'm so happy to have you here today. How are you? Hi, Amy. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and share some additional information on brain injury and returning to productive activity. Awesome. So, Kathy, I I love to start by having our guests share how they came to work in the brain injury community. Um, So if you can give us a little bit of your background and what brought you to origami. Sure. Well, through my bio, it was identified the various different areas that I've worked in the past. And I worked as an occupational therapist for eight years and fell in love with the rehab. 
I loved the amount of time I was able to spend with each client going through the rehab process, giving me the ability to really get to know them and get to know what is important to them and helping them reach the goals that they set. After eight years of working in inpatient rehabilitation and spreading um, throughout various areas within the acute care setting and the industrial rehab, I was just really ready for something more, um, something a little bit more specialized. And I was introduced to origami and the brain injury population and the brain injury rehab and just fell in love with the mission um, that origami has, the client-driven outcomes, and the ability to be creative with what we offer and fell in love with just working with the brain injury population and helping the clients reach the goals they set for returning to productive activity. And I'm inspired by the survivors every day as they really try hard to return to productive activity that is so important to everyone's day-to-day living. Yeah, you know, and and you're so right about returning to just everyday everyday living and getting back into routines. And, you know, I know for many survivors um, that have short-term memory problems, you know, it can be such a challenge to get into a routine because as silly as it seems, we forget what we're supposed to do. And, you know, I even had a whiteboard and, you know, I had on it, like, take the dog out make coffee, you know, do yoga, whatever. And I would still forget to do what I'm, you know, my, my regular morning routine. It's just, you know, we take things so for granted um, until we damage that circuitry in our brain. So Kathy, share with us a little bit. So you're an occupational therapist and, you know, I know there's some confusion as to what that means. What is an occupational therapist? So maybe just giving us a really brief overview of what occupational therapy is and what, um, what an OT does uh, to, to work with a brain injury survivor. Sure. Well, work and productive activities make up one of the performance areas within the scope of occupational therapy practice. So it's important for clinicians to include this area when providing rehab services for the survivors of TBIs. So what we offer here at Origami is a little bit more of a specialty service. So I primarily focus on working with individuals to help them reach that goal of productive activity. So it's a little bit more specialized than just occupational therapy. Um, It's specialized within and, and broken down within the vocational therapy and vocational services. Um, vocational services within occupational therapy is very different um, based on what facilities offer. But here at Origami, it means helping the clients return to that level of productive activity or helping them find a new level of productive activity that is meaningful to them, but also within their new skill level and abilities, taking into consideration their continued deficits and the areas of difficulties that they have. We take a very comprehensive and interdisciplinary approach here at Origami. When working with the client, we receive feedback from all team members, which really helps to develop a more comprehensive treatment plan to work on with the client and to offer the client and helping them return to work or school or whatever route it is that they will be returning to. All right. So, Let's kind of jump into our topic at hand of returning to work or school after a brain injury. And, 
you know, many people strive to get back to work. Um, you know, some don't ever get there, but many do. And, you know, what are some of the strategies you guys use to try and get someone back to their work, whether it's the same job or maybe they have to, um, you know, find a different career path after their brain injury? Well, in that last kind of sentence that you stated really holds so much more weight to it when we look at helping individuals return back and the strategies and the accommodations that might be important to implement to help them be successful within a work program. But kind of taking it back a step and helping them identify what route is it actually that they should be taking. And of course, we always take their their goals and their feedback into consideration. But from a rehab standpoint, being able to make those suggestions and those recommendations to our clients to really help them maximize their level of success. We have a lot of clients that will come and and be really excited to jump back into work and they will be ready to return tomorrow with or without accommodations and strategies. But being able to back it up a little bit and help them identify um, a more appropriate, like step one that I call it, to getting back to work is going to put them in a position to be more successful. And typically when it's focused on a way to help them be successful while identifying what their long-term goal is, the majority of our clients are open to that and knowing that our goal is to help them to reach their goal. So, So when I say all of that, what I'm trying to stress is really the importance of breaking it down a little bit more so taking it step by step towards helping them get back to work. So when I when I previously indicated that we take feedback from the interdisciplinary team, reaching out to the individuals that are working with them, clients might not have the cognitive ability or the physical ability to return to work immediately and perform the essential functions of the job and be successful with their work. So we have to look at all of the areas of deficits, all the barriers that are potentially limiting them from being able to get back to work and develop a plan from there. Um, an example might be to start out with a volunteer job to help build those work skills, build their endurance, and give us and the clients the ability to assess what areas of difficulty they might be having when they do return to a work environment. So when we look at volunteer work, we could look at things such as soft skills that would be needed before transitioning into more more of a competitive work environment. Are they able to communicate with coworkers on their needs? Are they able to accept feedback from supervisors? Are they able to utilize those executive functions that would be necessary in their job to be successful with that day-to-day work expectations. We also could address some of the other barriers, such as transportation. Are they driving? Have they returned back to driving? If they're not driving, how are they going to get to and from work? Do they need to be introduced to the local bus route? Or have they set up a plan with family members or friends to help with the transportation piece to get to and from work? Do they have medication that impacts their fatigue levels? Do they need to 
build up not only maybe a physical endurance, but also a cognitive endurance to be able to tolerate. Volunteering could give us the ability to assess, are they able to sustain a, a cognitive endurance that would be needed for a four-hour shift, or do we need to start out at a two-hour shift? Um, things of that nature will really give us a better idea of what skills and abilities do they need to improve on in the work environment before they transition to that competitive environment where there isn't as much leniency to build those skills that are needed. We really feel like once they do make that transition back to work in a competitive environment, they need to hit the ground running and be successful with the strategies and accommodations that have been put in place. That also relates to school as well. So when we make the recommendation to transition back to school, we reach out to the speech therapists that are on the team and the psychologists that are on the team to make sure that they have the ability to return back to school, again, typically taking into consideration their endurance levels and their cognitive abilities and identify returning back part-time and whether or not that would be an appropriate route to take. So really, there is a lot that can be done within the four walls of rehab, but being able to take what's learned within the walls of rehab and transition into the community is really an important piece um, to really maximize levels of success and put them in a position to be successful once they do make that transition. So, Kathy, how do we handle, okay, so I never remember the name of the condition, um, but it is basically when somebody with a brain injury thinks that they are actually recovered and they're not. Um, and I know there's like a technical name for it that I can never remember. Um, but I, I've met people um, who go through this that they, they truly think that they're 100% recovered and they're not. And you can't really tell them otherwise. They, they just don't believe it. Um, how do you work with someone like that to help them, um, you know, so they think they're recovered. They think they could go back to, let's say, maybe they were a truck driver or something, some, something that might be very unrealistic that they could get back to. How do you help someone like that get back to doing something without, you know, getting into that argument with them that they can't do it, but they think they can do it? Sure. So the, we, we often are encountered, we often are encountered with that level of awareness and the difficulty the clients do have. And the more concrete data we can show them, that is one factor that we will use if they are scoring really low in their um, neuropsych evaluation or their evaluations within the speech-language pathology evaluations. If, if we are able to take those scores and then break it down and ask them, truck driving is a little bit more challenging of an example to use because um, there's, right. there's, there's so many more involved. But um, say, for example, a teacher, if they're scoring really low in certain areas, then we can, we can grab a hold of those scores and ask the client to help process what that information really means as it relates to like a teacher job or a, a job in nursing or, or things of that nature, if they're scoring low, then asking them, well, how do you feel you would do if you were with a room full of students and you're scoring really low with your memory? How is that going to 
Um, how, how will you implement day-to-day strategies to be able to recall what you worked on the day before or what you need to work, identify with each individual student um, and break it down as much as possible. We often are encountered with individuals who really do dig their heels into the ground and are very persistent with their goal of going back to work sooner than what we may feel would be appropriate. I often, again, go back to the drawing board and ask if they would be willing to participate in a short-term volunteer job, which would give them a real concrete um, example and feedback and interaction with some real-life situations. So maybe actually putting them in a classroom of students and having certain expectations that have to be met and working with another teacher and being able to give some real concrete examples of some information that they may have forgotten from day to day and work on developing strategies and, again, sharing with them that we're not trying to keep them from going back to their job as a truck driver or a teacher, but really trying to make sure that we have the strategies in place before they go back and then their jobs are put in jeopardy. And so, you know, I know that you want to make sure that they're going to be safe and the people around them are going to be safe going back to work. Um, You know, do you ever collaborate with the employer Um, you know, perhaps you're trying to find out exactly what their job is, or perhaps you have a conversation with the employer to tell them, you know, well, now Bob has some of these issues and might need this and that to help accommodate them on the job. Um, Do you ever, um, I'm trying to think of the word mediator, is that the right word? Do you, do you ever kind of mediate between the employer and the patient? Absolutely. So we do often start out, if the client is not able to give us a real accurate description of his or her job, we will will reach out to the employer. And of course, we have to do this with having the client involved and them giving us permission in order to do that as well. But we reach out to the employer, get um, ask for a copy of the job description so we can have a more accurate idea of what exactly it is that they do. We often will reach out to the employer also and go out to the work site and get an idea, get a real good hands-on idea of what responsibilities the employee, the employee would have, what um, they might be challenged with, what maybe some of their work issues were before their accident, so we could get a better idea of not trying to make um, an individual a star employee if they weren't a star employee before, if we knew that they had challenges before, we will try to, um, we won't be, we won't feel it's as critical to address certain areas if there were challenges. So we can compare apples to apples when we do help an individual back to work. And then we also talk to the employer about accommodations and strategies and even just brain injury education. It's It's really helpful for supervisors or coworkers to be aware of what exactly it is that the client's going through and what brain injury is and some of the terms that are used, such as neurofatigue, information processing, some of the memory deficits, and what the supervisor can do to help with those 
strategies and accommodations to make a more successful transition for the client as they do transition back to work. So let's also finish. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to forget also not only the employer, but as we as we look at the focus of this podcast, but also students. So it's very common that we'll, we will sit in IEP meetings to be that person between rehab and school to make sure all of the rehab information is coming to the appropriate personnel in the school environment as well and that they have all the information as well. So assist with setting up 504 plans or IEPs and make sure that they have all the details to really implement a good, good plan for the student as he or she also transitions back to the academic environment. Great. Yeah, I was going to say let's shift gears to talk about school a little bit. Um, So when you're working with a patient who is in school, whether they're a smaller child or, you know, a teenager or even a college student, um, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I've heard a lot of really awful stories about school not honoring accommodations. And I, you know, I don't know what Michigan's laws currently are. Um, but again, do you kind of like mediate with the school to try to help um, ensure that that student is set up for success at school um, as well as at home? Absolutely. So we're very involved as soon as we start working with the client and are able to identify what school it is that they go to as we go through the medical records and meet with the client, we start that process immediately. So the school is aware of what's going on and the school is aware of when the student might be appropriate to make that transition back and then what ongoing accommodations might be needed. And then again, going back to the drawing board and identifying, does an entire IEP need to be developed? Or can those accommodations be provided through just strictly a 504 plan? Um, And then being able to work with the client as well and being able to identify some strategies to implement um, within their daily routine in the school environment. Um, Do they need to be able to be released from their class five minutes early and go to their locker, gather their materials for the next class to avoid the really hectic halls that transpire between the the classroom hours, and that can be very overwhelming to the students that have a brain injury and that might be really sensitive to noise and aren't able to filter out all of the noise that takes place within the hallway setting or might get distracted or might be overwhelmed and then lose focus of where they were heading. So that could be an accommodation that would be available for them or or accommodations such as sitting in the front of the classroom to avoid some of the distractions that they would be visually seeing. Um, People moving around in their seats or getting up and down from their seats. If they're sitting in front of the class, they wouldn't have the ability to see what's going on behind them or taking a test in a quiet room or even receiving um, the notes from a college professor before a lecture or even after a lecture so they can focus on what's being said instead of focusing on what's being said and trying to take the notes throughout the course of the lecture. Um, So we really look at what the needs of the student are as well as 
what the classroom setup is like, and often introducing them to, at a college level, the Office of Disability Support Services and making sure that they're aware of what is available to them through the college environment and making sure that they are comfortable knowing what steps they need to take to request a quiet room for a test. Um, and also, I, I try to stress with the, not only the students, but the um, individuals transitioning back to the work environment, communication is such a critical piece of the transition, especially when they don't have obvious physical limitations because brain injury is such a hidden diagnosis that coworkers, supervisors, students, professors, they don't see what the client or the student is struggling with. And unless they are aware that the student may be suffering from neuro fatigue or information processing, or they might be overwhelmed with all of the stimuli within a class environment, the student or professor or supervisor, they're not able to see what the client is really going through because it's not an obvious physical um, deficit that they are able to see. So we work with them really closely on that. Um, so, Kathy, could you maybe just explain what is a 504 and an IEP. Um, these are terms I hear come up on the podcast all the time, and, and I'm familiar with what they are, but perhaps someone listening doesn't know these exist and doesn't know what it is. Um, can you just give us like a really, you know, Cliff Notes version of what sure, they are? Sure, brief. <laughs> sure. So when I, I know they're very complicated. <laughs> absolutely, and it varies state by state as well. Right. So an IEP is an individual education plan that is an individualized plan that is able to list out what the student needs. So it, it's, a, it's a lot more detailed than a viable four plan. It might be an entire change in the curriculum that might be needed for that student. A 504 plan is a plan that is identified that is able to recognize what accommodations are needed within the classroom or within the academic setting so the client, or I'm sorry, the student can be successful in an academic setting. So an easy, an easy approach that I often take when explaining it very um, surface level to family members or to clients is a 504 plan works well for individuals who only need some accommodations or some strategies to be implemented within their academic environment. An IEP plan would be necessary for more for the individuals who need a more um, a more thorough change within their academic environment or might need a change within their um, their entire like like a big picture change on their school needs, a change in curriculum, a change in um, what classes or, you know, what the teachers can offer, maybe additional assistance through like a resource room or special education. That is when an IEP would be needed. Great. Thank you for um, explaining those because, like I said, I, you know, they come up often and um, I was just thinking as you were talking, I'm like, you know, I bet there's some people that don't know what those are. So um, sure. thanks for sharing that. And like you said, every state really is different. So um, where would you direct 
let's let's say a parent who has a child who's struggling with a brain injury or a concussion, um, where would you direct them as like a first step if they think that their child needs some accommodations but doesn't know where to start? Like, you know, say the doctor hasn't brought these up. Sure. Of course, the doctor is the first person that would be important to be involved because developing a 504 or an IEP, um, there has to be medical documentation that would be involved that needs to prove that the client or the student needs those accommodations or the plan itself to be implemented. So a medical physician is the um, a good place to start, but then also reaching out to the school and explaining what the student has gone through, explaining the medical treatment that's been provided, and then asking them, where do we need to start? Where Where is the, very, the beginning of the drawing board um, for requesting that through the school? So communication with those involved, and, and it varies school by school. Sometimes it's the director of special education. Sometimes it's the school counselor. Finding out what individual would be the go-to person is going to be important. Kathy, we are just about out of time, and I just wanted to make sure, have we touched on everything um, that you had hoped to talk about today with going back to work in school? There's two areas that I would really like to give just a brief description on that might be helpful for individuals moving forward. And the first of them is... a lot of people are familiar with the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, um, because it is a, a well-known, um, it's, it's well-known that's available for individuals. However, a lot of individuals have a misperception of really truly what the ADA says and what it's able to offer. So when I work with my clients and I'm, I'm talking about the ADA, it's very common for our clients to feel like they are protected regardless of what's happening as they do make that transition back to work. And I stress with them that there's a lot that can be protected under the ADA. However, the client still has to be able to perform what's called the essential functions of the job. So really going to the drawing board and figuring out what are those essential functions and then what accommodations can be available around those essential functions and what could be changed. So it's really important to understand that the ADA is available, but also that it doesn't protect you from everything an individual still has to be able to perform those essential functions. The other piece is a resource called Job Accommodation Network. It's called JAN, acronym of JAN, J-A-N. And that is a great tool for individuals to tap into on the, on the online um, to be able to identify what accommodations could be helpful as clients do make that transition back to work or school. And through JAN, they're able to list specifically what diagnosis it is that they are suffering from, and it will pull up an entire list of accommodations that will be could be available, whether it's you know cognitive difficulties they're having or are their deficits more physical in nature or the visual changes that often um, clients struggle with after having a head injury. So it's able to really provide a wealth of information on accommodations that can be available to individuals. Awesome. Really um, great resource. Is their their website, do you know their website by chance? It is, I believe it's jan.org. Okay. That's that's what I was going to guess, but (laughs) great resource. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, great, great thoughts on the ADA as well. Um, you know, it, it is important for people to understand that they do have to be able to perform um, core elements of their job. They can't just go back and essentially not work, you know, not get work done. Um, so that, that is a really um, valuable point. And can you maybe clarify something too in that regard? Um, so if somebody wants to get accommodations and, and, you know, work with the employer, um, they obviously have to disclose that they have a disability. Um, but w- can you, again, just like a cliff notes version of, of what you do or don't have to tell your employer? Sure. You have to disclose what accommodations are needed, but you don't have to disclose that you have a brain injury. Again, I'm going back to that communication piece and stressing the more information that you are able to share, the more supports I have found employers are able to provide. And again, it depends on the relationship that you have with your supervisor. If you don't have a supervisor that is very supportive at all, you might want to rethink about what you're sharing with them. But do you share that information with human resources versus your supervisor versus a coworker who maybe could provide some extra support. It's going to be important to identify who is going to be your supportive individual when you do make that transition back to work. Um, human resources is most often directly involved with being able to identify what they can offer in terms of accommodations, but often coworkers or a supportive supervisor directly involved with the Um, facilitation of strategies or the queuing that might be needed or being able to offer like a outline of a meeting that's taking place. That would be more of a supervisor um, direction that would be um, needed as opposed to human resources. So it can vary depending on what your needs are. And I want to verify the website for Jan is actually askjan, A-S-K-J-A-N dot org. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Thank you for checking that out. (laughs) Askjan.org. All right. Kathy, thank you so much. This has been really great information. And I know that our listeners got a ton of information today. So thank you so very much for being here and sharing your time with our listeners. You're welcome. Thank you, Amy. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you got some really great information today from Kathy. And just another thank you to Minnesota Minnesota Functional Neurology, the concussion doctors you can trust in the Midwest. Find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. Thank you all again for listening and for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you next time.